0: RipperCast presents 10 Weeks in Whitechapel an audio series based on the blog 10 Weeks in Whitechapel written and narrated by Carl Kopak, and featuring the voices of Catherine Amin Paul Begg Neil R.A. Bell Andrew Firth Michael Hawley Philip Hutchison Steve McDermott John Reese Ally Ryder Adam Stevens, Callum Williams, Gareth Williams, Ian Wilson, and Keeley Wilson. Week 6. The Work of a Devil. The Murder of Mary Jane Kelly. 9th November,
1: 1888. On the morning of the 30th of September, 1888... London woke up to the murderous news from Whitechapel, and subsequently to blind panic. Not only had Leather Apron killed again, but he had done so twice this time, and on one occasion had travelled into a new realm to do so. By passing across the boundary of the East End and into Mitre Square, Oldgate, he had entered the much more respectable area of the City of London. Killing prostitutes in the overcrowded slums of Whitechapel was one thing, but if he wanted to add a lady to his conquests, then no respectable person was safe. While the police called for calm, the media had other ideas. The star wrote on its front page of the 1st
2: of October, The terror of Whitechapel has walked again, and this time has marked down two victims, one hacked and disfigured beyond discovery, the other with a throat cut and torn. Again he has got away clear, and again the police, with a wonderful frankness, confess that they have not a clue. They are waiting for a 7th and 8th an murder, just as they waited for a 5th to help them to it. Meanwhile, Whitechapel is half mad with fear. The people are afraid even to talk with a stranger. Notwithstanding the repeated proofs that the murderer has but one aim and seeks but one class in the community, the spirit of terror has got fairly abroad and no one knows what steps a practically defenceless community may take to protect itself or avenge itself on any luckless white who might be taken for the enemy. It is the duty of journalists to keep their heads cool and not inflame men's passions and what is wanted is cool temper and clear thinking, and we shall try and write calmly about this new atrocity.
1: Suggestion noted. Fear was on sale, and the great British public were buying. People couldn't get their newspapers and daily sheets quick enough. Such were the amount of dailies on offer that some residents complained about the noise emanating from newspaper boys and their constant cries of horrible murder. The 1st of October, the Monday following the murders, saw a very busy day in the case. The inquest into Liz Stride's murder began in nearby Cable Street, while their former beau and possible suspect, Michael Kidney, turned up at Lehman Street Police Station and drunkenly chastised the official force, at one stage even claiming to be able to catch the killer himself. He also suggested that the policemen who patrolled Berner Street at the time of the murder should commit suicide through shame at their dereliction of duty. On the same day, the Daily News printed the Dear Boss letter, just as the saucy Jackie postcard arrived at the Central News Agency. At 3.30pm, Queen Victoria telephoned the Home Office to discuss the murders, while interviews of witnesses by both the police and press began in earnest. Again it was noted that the new batch of murders had, like their predecessors, occurred at a weekend and after midnight. Was there a reason for this? Maybe he was only in the area on selected days. Maybe he was a religious maniac, or a man with a family who could only stalk the streets when his brood were away. Fresh evidence came to light. As had been noted with the Hanbury Street murder, the extrication of organs had been carried out with no little degree of skill. The man who had mutilated Catherine Eddowes had taken out her kidney and uterus in a short space of time and in total darkness. That alone, as the Times observed, should have narrowed the field of suspects somewhat, but as October gave way to November, no arrests were made. George Lusk, who had received the gruesome package along with the From Hell letter on the 16th of the month, petitioned the government and police to offer a reward to a ripper accomplice. It was his view that no man could carry out these dreadful deeds without help from one source or another, and the prospect of cold hard cash might encourage one man to give the other up. The Dear Boss and Saucy Jack communications added a further intrigue. Not only did the killer have the gall to commit the crimes, but he was goading the capital too, threatening the public and mocking the authorities. They also led to one tedious development, that of persuading others to write hundreds of equally bogus letters based on some of the syntax contained in the originals. Each had to be investigated in case they were genuine and thousands of man-hours were lost. One such hoaxer, a Maria Coroner, was not so lucky and was charged with fabricating one in which it was claimed that the next victim would be found dead on the streets of Bradford. There was one peculiar oddity in the month of October. In any film depiction of The of Terror, it's not uncommon to see a dark figure approaching petrified unfortunates in cobble streets while a deep fog swirls around them. The London Peace Super is a classic motif in any portrayal of the case And indeed, there was a fog in October. It's just that October was the only month where the murderer didn't strike. The meteorological peculiarities didn't end there, as, at the time, it became the hottest October since records began. It seems that the filmmakers will have to go back and do them all again. Ah, well. Each weekend saw people on their guard. Fingers were pointed in every direction, and the possibility of street lynchings were very real. Of course, the unfortunate women still had to win their daily DOS money, and to therefore sell themselves in dark alleyways and stable yards, but those with friends became a little bit more choosy than usual. However, when insensible with drink, and facing the prospect of sleeping rough, caution often took a back seat, thus making ideal conditions for a prowling serial killer. Men began to warn their spouses about taking to the streets, as Leather Apron was now casting his net even further. One such, a man named Joseph Barnett, a former fish porter from Billingsgate Market, would read the horrifying newspaper reports to his partner, an Irish girl called Mary Jane Kelly. She, like so many fallen women in the area, was petrified as Annie Chapman had just been killed nearby in Hanbury Street. On the 30th of October, Barnett arrived in his lodgings at 13 Millers Court, Dorset Street to find that Kelly had allowed another prostitute to share their room. Barnett was furious. He was keen to keep Kelly off the streets and away from the undesirable elements of the East End. The couple argued, and in the melee, a window was broken, before Barnett stormed off to find new lodgings in nearby Bishopsgate. He would, however, return almost daily to her. It's ironic that Mary Jane Kelly's name is probably the best known amongst the victims, as she's the one of which we know the least. There isn't a single picture or photograph of her other than that of her death scene, and that's more of a collection of body parts rather than anything recognisable as a human being. Most information about her is either guesswork or comes from what she told Barnett, and not all of that was necessarily gospel. We know at least that she was 25 and probably born in Ireland in 1863. At some point she moved to Wales and married a man called Davis, who was killed in a mining accident. She then moved to Cardiff to live with a cousin, where she first became a prostitute. By 1884 she was in London, and there's a story of her working in a West End brothel. She told Barnet that she once accompanied a gentleman to Paris but didn't like it and came home. Maybe this is why she altered her middle name from Jane to the more French Jeanette. The first reference of Kelly in the East End was her appearance at Breeze's Hill on the Ratcliffe Highway, a mile or so from Whitechapel. Barnet described it as a bad house. She left in 1886 and lived with a man called Morganstone in the salubrious location of the Stepney Gasworks. However, she soon threw him over for a stonemason called Joseph Fleming in Bethel Green. Kelly and Fleming seemed close even during her time with Barnett. She moved to Thrall Street Spitalfields, where Polly Nichols also lived at number 18, in all around 1887. As to her character, it's very similar with the other victims. She was very well liked and quiet in her habits, but rather vociferous and argumentative when drunk. Barnett and Kelly first met on Good Friday, the 8th of April, 1887 in Commercial Street. They went for a drink and arranged to live together the following day. For the next few months they moved around the street surrounding Commercial Street before settling on a single room at 13 Millers Court, a little alley running off Dorset Street. Access to Millers Court was from a narrow passageway between 26 and 27 Dorset Street. Annie Chapman had lived at Crossingham's Lodging House at 35 Dorset Street, on the same side of the road. Although the two women lived close together, it doesn't necessarily follow that they knew each other. Dawson Street was so overcrowded that it could house a couple of thousand people per night. They would have drunk in the same pubs, though. The Britannia, known as Ringers, and the Ten Bells were local haunts, for the people of Dawson Street, as it became known. Barnet lost his licence as a fish porterer, and his job, possibly because of an accusation of theft, in the summer of 1888. With his income gone, Mary had no choice than to try her luck on the streets again, a decision which Barnett abhorred. Not only did he hate the idea of her prostituting herself, he disliked the company she kept. He later stated at the inquest, She would never have gone wrong again, and I shouldn't have left her if it had not been for the prostitutes stopping at the house. She only let them because she was good-hearted, and did not like to refuse them shelter on cold, bitter nights. We lived comfortably, until Marie allowed a prostitute named Julia to sleep in the same room. I objected, and as Mrs Harvey afterwards came and stayed there, I left, and took lodgings elsewhere. On the evening of Thursday the 8th of November, he visited her at Miller's Court, where she was with another resident of Dorset Street. They parted on good terms and he went back to Bishopsgate to play whist before going to bed. He would never see her alive again. It's rumoured that Mary then went to the Ten Bells for the majority of the evening, whereupon she drank heavily. A little before midnight, Mary Ann Cox, a prostitute from five Miller's Court, saw her with a man with a look who was wearing a long overcoat and a billycock hat. He had a blotchy face and a ginger moustache and was carrying a quarter can of ale. Cox bid her night, and Mary, who could barely stand at that point, told her that she was going to sing. From her room, Cox heard her sing the song Only a Violet i Plucked from My Mother's Grave. Cox went out again, and when she returned, Mary was still singing. A neighbour, Catherine Pickett, became annoyed at the noise, but was dissuaded from telling her to be quiet by her husband. At 2am, a labourer called George Hutchinson walked north on Commercial Street towards Dorset Street and the Ten Bells. He had been to Romford some 15 miles away and had traipsed all the way back to Spitalfields to try and gain access to his lodging house at the Victoria Working Men's House at 39 to 41 Commercial Street. He was too late and was doomed to walk the streets in the rain instead. He bumped into Kelly just south of Flarendine Street. He would later state that she was not drunk, just spreeish, so maybe her singing performance had sobered her up a little. She asked him for a sixpence which he didn't have as he had spent all my money down Romford. She bade him good morning and continued in the direction of Whitechapel High Street. He watched her go. Maybe a plan was forming in his head. He knew she had her own accommodation and a kind heart, so there was a chance of shelter. Hutchison reduced his walking pace and watched Mary move south. He then saw her pass a well-dressed man who tapped her on the shoulder and said something to her. She laughed and said, All right. To which he replied, You will be all right for what I have told you. Mary turned around and led the strangers back towards Miller's Court, and to Hutchinson. All three of them headed north, but Hutchinson stopped under the street light outside the Queen's Head pub on the corner of Commercial Street and Fashion Street, the pub incidentally where Liz Strider visited on the night of her murder. He wanted to get a good look at the man. He later told the police what had happened. They
0: both then came past me, and the man hid down his head with his hat over his eyes. I stooped down and looked him in the face. He looked at me stern. They both went into Dorset Street. I followed them. They both stood on the corner of the court for about three minutes. He said something to her. She said, All right, my dear, come along, you will be comfortable. He then placed his arm on her shoulder and gave her a kiss. She said she had lost her handkerchief. He then pulled his handkerchief, a red one, out and gave it to her. They both then went up the court together. I then went to the court to see if I could see them, but I could not. I stood there for about three quarters of an hour to see if they came out.
1: They did not. So I went away. Three quarters of an hour, in the rain, on London's Rufford Street. Hmm. So what did the man look like? George was quite specific. Description. Age about
0: 34 or 35. Height 5 foot 6. Complexion. Pale. Dark eyes and eyelashes. slight moustache. Curled up at each end. And dark hair. Very surly looking. Dress. Long dark coat. Collars and cuffs trimmed astrakhan. And a dark jacket under light waistcoat dark trousers dark felt hat turned down in the middle button boots and gaiters with white buttons wore a very thick gold chain white linen collar black tie with horseshoe pin respectable appearance walked very sharp
1: jewish appearance can be identified hold on The street's ill-lit, it's 2am and raining, yet George can ascertain and recall intricate details such as horseshoe pins and white buttons. He's either the greatest witness of all time or one hell of a storyteller. That's not just a passing description. That's positively forensic. One thing about him is certain. He was certainly outside Miller's Court at one point. We know this because he was seen. I'll admit that I'm fascinated with George. Very little is known about him, and he more or less disappears after this statement, but I'll return to him later. At around 4am, Elizabeth Prater, a neighbour of Kelly's, was awoken by her kitten, Diddles, walking across her as she slept. She heard a faint cry of murder from another room, but thought nothing of it, as it was a common cry at the time. She went back to sleep. Mrs Cox was back home at this point, but did not sleep. She heard men come and go all night, including one at 5.45am, that she could not swear from whence he came. The next morning, the landlord, John McCarthy, instructed his employee, Thomas Bowyer, also known as Indian Harry, to collect the rent from Thirteen Millers Court. The woman was 29 shillings in arrears, a huge sum. Bowyer headed down the passage to Kelly's room and found no answer, but remembered that the window at the back was broken and covered up in rags and an old coat, so he walked around the corner and investigated there. He pulled back the rag and peered inside. Side note. It's usual for any suspects of the Jack the Ripper case to know their way around the murders, and become desensitised to the extraordinary violence and horror of such carnage. As I've warned throughout, anyone easily shocked should just take my word for it when I say no good can come from looking at the sight which Thomas Bowie witnessed firsthand. I can read books about some of the most horrific atrocities ever afflicted and remain unaffected, but the scene in Miller's Court is just too much. Detective Chief Inspector Walter Jew, who claimed that he knew Kelly by sight, was on duty at Commercial Street Police Station when Boyer reported the murder.
0: If I remember rightly, it was between 10 and 11 o'clock in the morning that I looked into Commercial Street Police Station to get in touch with my superiors. I was chatting with Inspector Beck, who was in charge of the station, when a young fellow, his eyes bulging out of his head, came panting into the police station. The poor fellow was so frightened that for a time he was unable to utter a single intelligible word. At last he managed to stammer out something about, Another one, Jack the Ripper, awful, Jack McCarthy sent me. Mr McCarthy was well known to us as a common lodging house proprietor. Come along Joe," said Inspector Beck, and gathering from the terrorised messenger that Dorset Street was the scene of whatever had happened, we made him our pilot as we rushed in that direction, collecting as many constables as we could on the way.
1: Though later told the press, The sight that we saw, I cannot drive away from my mind. It looked more like the work of a devil than of a man. I had heard a great deal about the Whitechapel murders, but I declare to God I had never expected to see such a sight like this. The whole scene is more than I can describe. I hope I may never see such a sight as this again. Even a description of the scene without photographic evidence is still a little hard to take. The murderer took his time with his victim and indulged his fascination with internal organs to the maximum. So, warning here. The next isn't pleasant. The body lay on the bed, with the head turned towards the window. Mary's nose, cheeks and eyebrows had been cut off. Her stomach had been cut open and the entire contents had been removed. Her breast had been sliced off through intercircular incisions. One had been placed under her head along with her uterus and kidneys, and the other by her right foot. Her liver sat between her feet, while the flesh from her abdomen and thighs were left in piles on a side table. Her right thigh had so much flesh removed that the bone was visible. Her heart was missing entirely. What is equally telling about this particular murder is what the Ripper didn't do. For once, he was uninterrupted. There were no passing carters on their way to work, there was no neighbours in backyards who could look over a fence, and no men driving ponies and carts to get in the way. There were also no policemen on the beat. For once, he could do what he wanted without fear of interruption. It's worth noticing that he didn't leave a message for the police. He had ample time to write an essay about the Jews being the men who would not be blamed for nothing, or cutting off ears, or even in the apparent vendetta with George Lusk, but instead he just cut away and cut away at a long dead body. The only jeopardy came in getting away, and no one would look twice at a man leaving a room of prostitutes in Dorset Street. Inspector Beck and Sergeant Edward Badham from the Commercial Street Police Station arrived at Miller's Court, and were soon joined by Superintendent Thomas Arnold and Inspector Edmund Reed from Whitechapel's H Division. Abilene and Robert Anderson, Scotland Yard arrived too, but the room wasn't entered for a further two hours due to a discussion about whether or not to bring in bloodhounds. In the end it was decided that this would be impractical and the landlord John McCarthy broke down the door with an axe handle. The fire was still burning and had reached such a temperature that it had melted the spout off the kettle. It seems that clothing had been used to fuel the fire while others were neatly folded away nearby. Abiline suspected that the fire was there to give the murderer light and he may well have been right. By now a large crowd had formed in Commercial Street, and any newcomer examined minutely. The body was eventually transported to a mortuary in Shoreditch, rather than Whitechapel. An inquest was called, and began and ended in a single day, with both Barnet and McCarthy identifying the body. One man did not attend the inquest. George Hutchison, despite being a resident of Commercial Street and was arguably the last person to see her alive other than the killer, did not approach the police with his statement until the following Monday, some three days after the murder. Why exactly? If he'd been so worried about his friend when he bumped into her, why not bring her killer to justice at the official inquiry? Why stay silent? The most obvious reason stems from the following evidence, from a Sarah Lewis. As I said, George had been seen. I live at 24 Great Power Street, Spitalfields. I'm a laundress. I know Mrs Keeler in Millers Court. I was at her house at half past two on Friday morning. She lives at number two in the court on the left, on the first floor. I know the time by having looked at the Spitalfields church clock as I passed it. When I went in the court, I saw a man opposite the court in Dorset Street, standing alone by the lodging house. He was not tall, but stout, had on a black wide-awake hat. I did not notice his clothes. Another young man with a woman passed along. The man standing in the street was looking up at the court as if waiting for someone to come out. This man was clearly Hutchinson, as by his own admission he had stood outside the Commercial Street Chambers dot House directly opposite Middles Court. It's likely that he read the report and fancied that he was now a suspect. Hutchinson duly turned up at Commercial Street Police Station at 6pm on the 12th of November and gave his statement to Sergeant Edward Badham. Auerline interviewed him later and thought him a creditable witness. Perhaps the closing words can be identified, gave the inspector hope. Indeed, for a few nights, Hutchinson accompanied that blind around the area, looking for the Astrakhan Man, as he became known. Hutchinson even fancied that he'd seen the man since, this time in Petticoat Lane, but couldn't swear to it. Strange that he could remember everything about him in the darkness of Commercial Street, but not in cold daylight. The description of Astrakhan Man seems just a little, well, stereotypical. He might as well have said, rich Jewish toff, the rumours of the Ripper being rich and/or a surgeon were already strong, so Abelline could hardly be blamed for seizing on to Hutchinson's tale. The likelihood, though, is remote. And men dressed that way walking past the rookeries of Thrall Street, Flarendine Street, and West of Old Dorset Street were not only of excited comment but downright action. Any gentleman thus attired would have been mugged three times by the time he would reached Christchurch. There is even a suspicion that if the story is true. Hutchinson lay in wait outside Miller's Court for just that purpose rather than to protect Kelly. The Astrakhan man would have been easy pickings for a mugger. That said, Dr Thomas Bernardo was a frequent visitor to the area, but he remained unmolested, so maybe such a sight would have been too unusual, though it's unlikely that the doctor would be hobnobbing with the drunks and thieves of Dorset Street at 2am. The main criticism of Hutchinson's suspect is that the other witnesses saw a shabby, genteel man dressed as a regular Whitechapel resident rather than the well-to-do man casually chatting to prostitutes. It seems more likely that he bumped into Kelly, and being without a bed for the night, saw the chance of shelter, plus anything else on offer, so he waited outside for a latest client to move on. Once he read Sarah Lewis's statement, he saw how things looked, so he came up with this elaborate tale of Commercial Street, knowing that it would get him off the hook. He would also have known that the press would pay for his story, and easy money should never be passed up. Some have claimed that Hutchinson was the murderer, notably Bob Hinton, in his no-nonsense book From Hell, The Jack the Ripper Mystery. It wouldn't be the first time a murderer has gone to the police with a false story to put them off the scent, but this all seems a bit desperate. The chances are just that he happened to see her on the night she died, and saw an opportunity to make some money. He wasn't the only person to see her at the crucial time. A woman called Caroline Maxwell told the inquest that she'd been talking to Mary Kelly between 8am and 8.30am on the morning of the 9th of November. The morning her body was discovered. She'd been returning some borrowed plates when she bumped into Mary, who told that she had the horror of drinks upon her. Maxwell suggested the hair of the dog at the ringers, but Kelly said that she tried that and pointed at some nearby vomit on the pavement. Caroline was so adamant about this meeting that she ignored coroner Roderick McDonald's warning that her evidence flew in the face of the established time of death set by the doctors. Years later, Walter Dew wrote that Maxwell was a sane and sensible woman, and of excellent reputation. It's likely that she got the day wrong rather than the encounter, though another witness, Morris Lewis, claimed that he saw it in Ringers at 10am, 45 minutes before Thomas Bowyer made his grisly discovery in Miller's court. Mary was certainly dead by then, and the body was certainly hers, no matter what the Johnny Depp film from Hell says. Abelion interviewed Joseph Barnett for four hours, as he was clearly a suspect, but found his story to be strong and his alibi unbreakable. Once again, the Ripper had struck from under the very noses of the police, and on this occasion, in the busiest street in London. He had clearly decided that the streets were too hot and alive with police and vigilantes, so he transferred his killing grounds to indoors, leaving Abiline's men with no chance of catching him red-handed. If anything, the case was more hopeless than ever. And yet, the hideous murder of Mary Jane Kelly was the last of the cycle, and over the coming weeks and months, the East End returned back to normal. Kelly was buried at Leighton Stone Roman Catholic Cemetery, Recently, there's been talk of exhuming her body to check for any DNA, which might lead to the capture of her murderer, but the actual location of her grave is still unknown. Christmas came and went with no further rip killings. The murders simply ceased. Though as had happened before, Fred West for example, serial killers do not simply end due to boredom or caution. They are compulsive creatures and not governed as we are. Many see capture and imprisonment as unavoidable, even desirable, but they listen to their murderous desires first. When Peter Sutcliffe was caught in 1981, he expressed the need to talk and to share his subject so people could see the beast I am, though he didn't give himself up until he buckled under questioning when he realised that the police had found his weapons at the site of his arrest. Some have suggested that Miller's court was the Ripper's masterpiece, and having fulfilled his every wish and desire, he either lost interest or it drove him insane. Or more insane. Serial murderers tend to stop the work because they've either died, been committed to an asylum without their offences being discovered, or arrested and imprisoned for lesser crimes. Jack could also have moved elsewhere. There were certainly similar murders committed, noticeably of Carrie Brown in New York in April 1891, but it's generally considered that the Ripper murders ended with Mary Kelly. That's certainly the official view. The case itself is not closed for a while, and the Scotland Yard file covers 11 murders in total, with 5 being official Ripper killings, the canonical 5. We have already seen some of the murders of the non-canonical victims such as Emma Elizabeth Smith and Martha Tabram which, when included with the C5 deaths, brings us up to seven. Four more were added. Five weeks after the Caddy murder, Catherine Mylett, known as Rose, was found dead by strangulation in Poplar High Street. Not only is this not considered a ripper murder, it is questionable that's a murder at all. The coroner, Wynne Baxter, who had presided over the inquest of Nicholls, Chapman and Stride, told the jury that she was murdered, but years later, Sir Robert Anderson of Scotland Yard wrote in his autobiography, The Lighter Side of My Official Life,
0: The Poplar case of December 1888 was death from natural causes, and, but for the Jack the Ripper scare, no one would have thought of suggesting that it was a homicide.
1: A murder came much closer to home on the 17th of July 1889, in Castle Alley, now Castle Street, Whitechapel. When a woman called Alice Mackenzie, or Claypipe Alice, was found with her throat cut and body partly mutilated. Castle Alley runs parallel to Goulson Street and Commercial Street. For any George Hutchison as Suspect fans, it's worth noting that his lodgings were merely yards away from this site. Again, there is some disagreement with this murder. While some, such as Dr George Baxter Phillips, who examined Annie Chapman's body in the yard of 29 Hanbury Street, dismissed it as just another murder, others cite the mutilations, albeit superficial, and the severing of the left carotid artery to be a classic Ripper murder. When coupled with the fact that it occurred in the heart of Ripperland, the coincidence seems a little too strong. That said, it is also possible that it was deliberately made to look like his work. Another case in the annals of the Whitechapel file occurred not in the East End, but in a West End police station, Two days after the double event, a headless and limbless body turned up in the vaults of the new Scotland Yard building and embarrassed more than a few officials. The body was never identified, though some parts were later found in the Thames. Any ripper link is unlikely, but due to the grim nature of the discovery, the press made the connection and it appeared in the dossier. That file closes with the murder of Francis Coles on the 13th of February 1891, probably the more interesting of the non-canonical victims as it featured an actual arrest. At 2.15am, P.C. Ernest Thompson was walking along Chamber Street when he heard the sound of a man's retreating footsteps. He flashed his lamp into the corner of nearby Swallow Gardens and found Frances Coles, a 25-year-old prostitute from Bermondsey, lying on the ground with blood pouring from her throat. Thompson could have caught up with the man, but as Frances still had an eye open, he stayed with her, in line with police procedure. She died without saying a word. The poor policeman would live with the knowledge that he could have caught the man, and possibly the ripper. Quite a coup, as this was his first time he'd walked a beat alone. Cole had spent a day or two with a 53-year-old ship's fireman called James Thomas Sadler. They had known each other for 18 months or so, and came across each other again at the Princess Alice pub on the corner of Commercial Street and Wentworth Street. It's still there now, and it's called the Culpepper, which was also a pub used by John Piser, a.k.a. Leather Apron. The couple then drank around the area, and stayed firstly in Thrall Street, and then a doss out in White Row, one road south of Dorset Street. From then on, they went on to a pub crawl before parting ways. Sadler then went to Thrall Street, where a woman crept up on him from behind and knocked him on the head, before two men stole his money and watch. Sadler, both drunk and dazed, found Francis and hoped that she would help him, but this was not to be the case. He returned to the SS Fez, a ship from which he'd been dismissed two days earlier, to try and secure a bed for the night. Drunk as a lord, he entered into his second altercation of the night and was beaten up by two dock labourers. He then tried to gain lodging in the Victoria Lodging House in East Smithfield, but being in his cups was also turned away there. He then went back to White's Row where he found Frances again. She was nodding off but still had no money to help him. Sadler tottered off to the London Hospital on Whitechapel Road to have his wounds dressed. Sadler was arrested on the 15th of February and charged with Frances's murder. The police, suspecting that they may not just have the murderer, but also Jack the Ripper, brought in Joseph Lavender, who had witnessed Catherine Eddowes with her murderer near the entrance of Mitre Square. Lavender didn't identify Sadler as being the same man, and the fireman was released. And with that, the Whitechapel murders ended. By 1892, the case was closed, in much as it ever could be. No murder is ever really closed, as they can always be reopened if new evidence comes to light, but eventually the police presence in Whitechapel decreased, and eventually fizzled out entirely. The Autumn of Terror was finally over. No one was ever charged with the murders, though senior officers had their suspicions as to the man's identity.